Hello, welcome to Live from CapTimes Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the next week, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever Idea Fest at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Today, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson. The conservative politician and former business executive spoke with Jeff Mayers of WIS Politics on some major issues immigration, taxes, climate change, also Ken Burns documentaries. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you. How you been? Good. Yourself? All right. Anything going on in D.C. that we should Not talk much. about? Not much, no. <laughs> been pretty boring. Okay. <laughs> been pretty boring, yes. Okay. So you're on your second term. And uh, I remember the, one of the first things you said about being in your first term was that you couldn't believe that Washington was run by a bunch of 20-year-olds, right? Well, you know, the staff is pretty young. Yeah. And yeah. so you've come to grips with that, though, right? Well, first, they're, they're young and they're bright and they're energetic. That's a good thing. But the, the downside of that, and this is true of not only staff, but too many members, too many folks in the bureaucracy, is uh, they never really served in the private sector. So you're in Washington, D.C., and you're governing a private sector, the thing that fuels our economy, produces you know, the tax revenue to, to fund government, but also provide jobs. And yet you've got the bureaucrats, you've got staff, you've got too many members of Congress that never participate in the private sector, so they're governing something that they don't really understand all that well, and that creates some real problems. Okay, so that's your calling card, really. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, someone in the audience may never have heard you in person. And so I think that it's important, you know, that's kind of your calling card. You're bringing your private, private sector, sector, your private sector experience, and that's your prism in which you... Well, I'm also an accountant, not a lawyer. Okay. Uh, in, in the business world, if you, there's a real difference between the two of us. I mean, I'm really about facts and, and figures and, and doing things as simply as possible. Uh, attorneys have a tendency to uh, bill up, or drive up billable hours and, and, from my standpoint, make things pretty complex in a contract. So, <laughs> no, there, there's, there's just different uh, mindset. Different philosophy. Again, some of, my, some of my best friends are lawyers. You know, we, we, it takes all kinds. Okay. So I wanted to focus uh, today, my part of it, before we get to audience questions, about um, the economy and the role that you know, workforce is playing. I mean, there's a labor shortage in this country and in this state. And so uh, a vital part of that is the immigrant workforce. And I think there's, there's been a lot of rhetoric thrown around, certainly. But I, I think, uh, you know, you have been um, uh, proposing a different way to get there. And I just want to talk about your philosophy in terms of uh, how to uh, ensure that there's a vital immigrant workforce uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, both the, uh, the labor and the companies benefit from that. Sure. Just give your philosophy Let, let me back up and just kind of on a macro basis talk about what it, what's required to have a functioning economy. I would say three elements. The, the table stake element is you have to have safety and security. You know, trust me, Syria's going to have a really hard time with a functioning economy. So you need safety and security as, as your table stakes. And then there are basically two elements. You have financial capital combined with human capital. Uh, you want as much you know, as possible of both. Uh, financial capital, we are fritting a lot of it away with overregulation and uncompetitive tax system. And from the standpoint of human capital, we don't have enough. There, you know, in six and a half years, uh, traveling around the state, I've, I've yet to visit a manufacturing company that can hire enough people. My own experience in, at Packer, you know, we've got a lot of great workers, but 
we always could use more. And it's been very difficult for the last 20, 25 years, quite honestly, hiring enough really good workers that uh, are interested in things like manufacturing. Now, I, I would say there's two reasons for that. Um, we'll say three if we start getting our immigration policy. But, but first and foremost, we pay people not to work. It's just true. Our, our, our welfare systems are incentivizing people. And that's why we have a real fall, one of the reasons we have a real fall off in terms of labor participation rates. Um, we pay people not to work, and we tell all of our kids also, you've got to get a four-year degree, which is fine. I have no problem with four-year degrees, but you don't have to have one to realize your full human potential. And, and, and by the way, in doing that, and this is why it's harmful from the standpoint of, of basic laborers, uh, trades, uh, manufacturing, is, is you imply, if you don't have a four-year degree, you're a second-class citizen. There's something wrong with working in a factory or being a plumber or electrician. We denigrate the trades. Nothing can be you know, further from the truth. All work has value. And so those are two in, in, inhibiting factors in terms of workforce in manufacturing, in agriculture, in the trades. And then, of course, we have a completely broken legal immigration system. Uh, it's one based more on family ties. We grant legal status to about a million people every year pretty much on average. In 2015, where we have the most recent figures, about 65% of those individuals getting permanent legal status uh, were family members. 21% were, were either diversity, granted, refugee or asylee. Only 14% had anything to do with, with uh, the workforce. Um, when we're already short of workers, I, I don't think that's a very good policy. So I think we really need to transition our immigration policies more to work-related. And one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, pass a, a three-year temporary guest visa program managed by the states. And the visa is granted by federal government, but then that program managed by the states, just recognizing the fact that uh, you're far better off with the states determining how many guest workers they really need in what industries. They can establish different wage rates so we don't depress wages in Wisconsin or throughout America. I just think uh, state-based solutions are going to be more tailored and, and more appropriate as opposed to a one-size-fits-all federal model. So the idea is that, for instance, the dairy industry in Wisconsin couldn't operate without immigrant labor. So the idea is that that's not seasonal, so therefore this bill would be needed to make uh, to accommodate the dairy industry, for example. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've got agricultural visas, but they're really tied toward a particular time frame during the year. They're not, they're not 365 days a year. It doesn't work really, really well for dairy because you've got to milk cows 365 days a year. So you're chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate. Uh, and so how, does, how do these kind of things fit in with the, the committee, the, the uh, focus of the committee in terms of security? Because you often talk about immigration, uh, immigrant workers, along with security at the border. So what, uh, what's the link in your mind? Well, in Congress, you have a committee structure which actually works pretty well. But every committee has its own jurisdiction when it comes to legislation. I'm, my committee is Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. So I've really got two House committees and one in the Senate. Homeland Security and then Government Affairs is the Senate Oversight Committee. So in terms of oversight, led, oversight jurisdiction, I pretty well have the entire federal government. But in terms of legislative uh, jurisdiction, it's pretty well confined to certain elements of Homeland Security. Uh, so I don't, by and large, when it comes to immigration policy, most of that has to do with laws, le you know, legal uh, uh, impacts on it. And so a lot of that would be covered by the Judiciary Committee. Okay, but what about the overall, I guess, 
issue about immigration, and you know, we need labor, so we 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 can't be anti-immigration. So we ha we need the labor, but how do we do that? I guess uh, you know, in in a, in a way that works for business, works for the immigrants who are here, illegal or not. Yeah. I mean, how's that all? I mean, that, that, as a senator, I mean, you you have to grapple with. So that. what I've been trying to convince my colleagues of doing in writing piece of legislation or solving these problems is actually go through a problem-solving process rather than a political-solving process. Uh, what happens in, in the business world, let me make that relationship. In the business world, the way you succeed is you tenaciously pursue areas of agreement. You know, you, you want to buy something, I got something to sell you. Now, now we can haggle over what the price is. In politics, and I think you all witnessed this, politicians exploit differences. And what also happens, and we, this was proof positive during the whole health care debate on the Republican side, you know, I was in that core group, and what I was witnessing, what I was, what I was seeing, were people on my side of the aisle, they already knew what policy they wanted to enact. So they start immediately arguing over the solution without having gone through the basic steps of a problem-solving process. Gather the information, uh, define the problem, do root cause analysis. Based on that analysis, establish achievable goals. Once you've done that, then you start designing solutions. But in the political realm, everybody already knows what their solution is, completely absent of information. So how would that apply to immigration? Well, let's take a look at the facts and figures. You know, I, I just spouted some. You know, a, very few of my colleagues, quite honestly, could probably tell you what I just told you. A million people granted legal residency, 65% family, 21%. Okay, what I, I won't repeat that. So from my standpoint, it starts with information. Uh, that's what I've done hearings on in terms of border security. You know, laying out, this is what's happened. One of the things I... I did in our border security hearings is I laid out all the pieces of information, a piece of legislation that we've passed since Reagan's, we'll call it Reagan's amnesty bill. Uh, and then I, I've also listed how many people are in this country illegally. And back with Reagan's amnesty program, I think they were estimated there'd be a million people that get that amnesty. I think two and a half or three and a half million took advantage of it. So it just shows you our estimates are off. But then we passed another piece of legislation and you know, so Reagan did that, was supposed to solve the problem, right? No, because next thing you know, we got six million people in this country illegally. Pass a law, you pass another law, now there's nine, you pass another law, now there's ten. Pass. So we never solved the problem. We passed laws, they got a nice name, I mean, I'll throw it, you know, Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, it just doesn't live up to the name, and that's also the truth in terms of immigration law. We've never solved the problem. Okay, well, we'll get to health care, I mean, uh, in a minute, but I mean, back to the immigration thing. So. You're not for amnesty, I take it, right? Or are you? No. Uh, no. I, I don't think that's... If somebody's committed an illegal act, you don't want to grant them amnesty, look the other way, because that just incentivizes more illegal activity. So that's, that's part of the problem with our immigration laws, is we have an awful lot of laws that actually incentivize people to come to this country illegally. That's what DACA was. There's a Feinstein Amendment that granted a lengthened adjudication process for children coming in from Central America. So guess what? We got a lot of... Combining DACA... With that Feinstein Amendment, we got a lot of children coming in from Central America taking a very dangerous journey on a, on a train they call the Beast, sexually assaulted, dying in the desert. That's not humanitarian. That's not compassion. So we have to look at our, our laws that are crazy in some case and just take a look at the, the unintended consequences of often very well-intentioned laws. Right, but, okay, so, well, let's use the Dreamers as an example, the, you know, DACA and the, the Dreamers. So... Uh, 
yeah, the, a flawed policy perhaps, but then here are all these kids here and they're, some of them are succeeding very well or filling uh, jobs that maybe, the, so. The, 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 what's unique about the Dreamers is they didn't commit an illegal act. Whoever brought them in did. And so, you know, I think in, it's actually pretty good in polling. I think it's what, 75, 80% of Americans think we really should do something you know, in terms of, you know, legal status, you can argue it should be citizenship, or whatever. But I think most Americans think that those individuals should be treated with real, real compassion, and humanity. So, do you so, think? So, so do I. So, is that going to happen? I think it will. I think, uh, you know, what President Obama did was unconstitutionally illegal. I think the courts are starting to rule that. It's one of the things I think uh, really pushed Trump to say, "Okay, you got six months. Solve this." And he's reaching out to the other side and, and trying to figure out, you know, how can we. In a political environment, you know, do this. What do we get in, in, in return for it? Hopefully, hopefully, increased border security because our our borders are a sieve. So, how does that make you feel that he was is dealing with Schumer instead of McConnell? You know, again, that's a very business-like approach. You're trying to find areas of agreement. I have no problem with it. I'm very supportive of his efforts uh, to work for bipartisanship. Okay, so you think there will be a DACA solution passing Congress? I think so. Yeah. And so that the the so-called Dreamers will be okay. I think so. Do you and then what, what I'm hoping is, in exchange for that, to get the political, you know, to get it passed, because uh, no matter what deal President Trump does with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, you're still going to have to run this by, you know, your a, folks, a, a House that has controlled by the Republicans and a Senate that has majority of Republicans as well. So, you know, we're all going to be involved in this. But again, the good news is, you take a look at public opinion polling; the vast majority of Americans want this issue dealt with. I think most members of Congress want to deal with it. I certainly do. Okay, so, so, you, so if we can do that, let's, let's eliminate some of those incentives for illegal immigration, which helps improve border security. Once America and Americans believe we're finally committed to securing the border, which they don't believe because we never have been, I really do believe the public, again, will be supportive of dealing with those individuals. You know, the, you know there's best estimate 11, 12 million people in this country illegally. Seven to eight million are in the workforce. They're working hard, they're contributing to the community, they're not breaking laws. I think the vast majority of Americans say, well, let's treat those folks with humanity as well. Not amnesty, but you can, you can get their employers to pay fines, or, you, know, you can do some kind of uh, restitution. Okay, so you're, it's been called various things. Some in your party have gone there and uh, regretted it politically. I'm wondering though whether this, this uh, the entrance of Trump and his uh, openly negotiating with the other side presents maybe an opportunity for a grand bargain, if you will, on this issue that has, you know, we've been talking about for a decade, you know. Oh, I've been you saying, you know listen, I've been saying publicly, I think this is a potentially a Nixon and China moment. You know, a president administration that you know, ran on a platform committed to securing the border, probably the, the, perfect, the, probably, probably the perfect president, perfect administration to say, okay, well, let's, let's give us that border security and we're, we're happy to deal with the dreamers. Now, healthcare. You mentioned healthcare. Uh, you ran for office in 2010, actually vehemently opposed to the ACA, uh, and that was uh, you had some personal reasons for that. But you, you know, that was uh, part of the reason you got elected. And uh, you know, uh, then Trump comes into office, and Congress is going to supposedly repeal this. And you know, you were one of the holdouts in the Senate on this issue, and now you're coming back with a bill to try to do something. So explain your philosophy on, now you oppose what's out there, but you're, what's your philosophy to, in your, do sure. you fix it? Well, 
you first have to take a look at what, what has been the result of Obamacare. No doubt about it, about 20 million Americans have gotten insurance coverage that they never had in the past. But it's also true that that insurance coverage, far higher deductibles than was prevalent prior to Obamacare. Uh, Out-of-pocket expenses, in many cases, make it almost impossible for people that have insurance, just almost completely paid for by the American taxpayer, they still can't use it because the, the out-of-pocket maximums and deductibles are, are, are far too high. So insurance doesn't necessarily equal access. The other problem, I was trying to, I was about one of the few people that really, really championing the cause of the forgotten men and women. The people President Clinton was talking about, they're out there busting it, working 60 hours a week. Their premiums have doubled. Trust me, they've tripled and more in many cases. Coverage cut in half. They get no subsidies. They've been completely priced out of the insurance market. That's been some real harm done by real people because of the faulty architecture of Obamacare. Forcing a very small slice of the American public, somewhere between 5 and 6% of the American public, to bear the full social cost burden of covering people with pre-existing high-cost conditions. It just doesn't work. It's, you know, nationally, premiums doubled. Um, so it's not working. So my approach to fixing that mess would have, first of all, been to reach out to the other side. I've, I've, thought, I've, again, publicly been saying it's really pretty stupid politically to say, okay, we're going to do this only with Republican votes under reconciliation. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you start the conversation going, okay, here's the problem, here's the mess, you know, a lot of this wasn't caused by anybody. It's just what's happened over the history of, of the development of 30-party payer systems, uh, government taking over control. We've really removed consumers from the equation. We don't have much consumer-driven price competition. Let's acknowledge those realities. But also, a lot of the stuff, the artificially increased premiums, I mean, sorry, Democrats, you caused that. Help us fix this mess. That's how I would start the, the conversation. But I would have laid out two primary goals. First, let's not pull the rug out from under anyone. And I, I, you know, a lot of us were saying that. I, I didn't want to take coverage away from anybody, but I also wanted to bring down those premiums that were artificially doubled and tripled. Entirely possible. If you had the courage to do an analysis, root cause analysis, what caused them? And the truth is, we, we finally got some information from HHS. I had to extract it under threat of making this public from, our, from a health and human service department controlled by Republicans. But they did a study conducted by McKenzie, looked at four states. In Tennessee, for example, one of the states they studied, premiums had tripled for a, a male age 40. 73 to 76% of that increased premium was caused by guaranteed issue and community rating. So again, we, we have the discussion, we want to cover the pre-existing conditions. Okay, fine, you can do it without collapsing insurance markets. You gotta spread that cost over everybody, not just those individuals on the, on, on the individual markets. Uh, we had a pretty successful high-risk pool in Wisconsin here. Not perfect for this, for covering people in previous conditions. It would need to be modified. Maine had guaranteed issue. Their premiums skyrocketed like ours did nationally with, with Obamacare. They didn't repeal guaranteed issue. They supplanted it with an invisible high-risk pool. And literally, for a young person, the premiums were cut to a third of what they were. For somebody my age, they're cut in half. So again, you had to look at that, but we didn't have the courage as Republicans, to admit, well, we really have to address this whole guaranteed issue, covering people with pre-existing conditions in an honest and open way if we're going to fix the problem. It's too politically popular, we wouldn't touch the 10-foot pole. So we ended up with a bill that didn't have much public support and wasn't solving the problem. Now, now what we're trying to work on is a block grant. Uh, I think this is, I'm actually pretty encouraged. Hopefully we can get this done. You know, take the Obamacare spending block grant to the states where you got 50 states you know, we do have a federalism model here. 
uh, have the 50 states start doing the experimentation, start implementing things like Maine's invisible high-risk pool. I think there should be a better solution. Uh, but again, we are constrained in terms of what we can do. Repealing some of these market distortions have caused premiums to increase uh, under our reconciliation procedures. Okay, so block granting to states, that's like totally opposite of Medicare for all, right? Yeah, Medicare for all won't work. Now, why so, won't it? Okay, so here's some facts. Uh, we're $20 trillion in debt. By the way, this, this is the you know, table stakes. It was, it was Obamacare and the fact where we have mortgaged our kids' future. We're $20 trillion in debt today. Over the next 30 years, we will incur additional deficits at least $100 trillion. Our calculation, cal calculations based on CBO figures about $129 trillion, but we can quibble with it. It's going to be over $100 trillion. Completely unsustainable. You used to have charts to show this Oh, stuff. I got charts. I, 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 had I known, <laughs> I'd have brought them. Uh, but still pretty easy to lay out. Of that $129 trillion, about $19, $18, 19000000000000 trillion is the deficit of Social Security. In other words, what we're going to pay out in benefits versus what we get in the payroll tax. Medicare is $39 trillion. The rest is pretty much interest on the debt, over $60 trillion. So if we don't want to pay our creditors over the next 30 years $65 trillion, we better fix the deficits in Social Security and Medicare. Here's the problem with Medicare, structurally. For every dollar that is paid in to Medicare through the payroll tax, the beneficiary is going to get three bucks. So you put a dollar in, you get three dollars out. Of course Americans like, who wouldn't love that deal? You pay a buck, you get three. Over time, it's, it becomes even more exacerbated. I heard somebody, I probably shouldn't quote it because it's a politifact, but I heard some, within not too many years, it's going to be a buck, you get six dollars out. So completely unsustainable, but it's such a popular program, who's going to address it? Instead, so popular, now they actually want to exacerbate the problem by making Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders' plan, and he's going to introduce this now, so his, his legislation wasn't scored, but his plan was as a presidential candidate. It was scored by the Urban Institute, a very reputable but left-leaning think tank. Scored it, said that single-payer would cost another $32 trillion over the next decade in terms of federal expenditures. But, but here's, that, of course, if they're taking it all over, you're going to expect federal expenditures to increase. But here's the, the real rub. Everybody sells single-payer systems like it's going to save money. Urban Institute said not the case. Single-payer under Bernie Sanders would actually increase national health expenditures, so what we totally spend, by $6.6 .6 trillion. Okay, let me... So, I mean, so again, I you know I threw a bunch of figures out there, yeah. but it just doesn't work. And by the way, if you want to know what a single-payer, government-run, bureaucratic health care system looks like, look at the VA system. Now, I know vets love it because it's completely free, but we have the wait list, we have the opioid problems. I mean, there are a lot of problems with the VA okay, system. Okay, so let me, let me try this, though. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a, I want to be an entrepreneur, and, um, but I don't have access to health care uh, through a company or whatnot. And, uh, you know, my spouse has to, instead of maybe helping me in this, uh, my spouse has to, uh, you know, work some job to get the health care. You know, so it's sort of a tortured thing in a way. If, if you know, I, I've seen this written by uh, people from overseas. They come to the United States and they can't believe that, you know, all the hoops that people are jumping through to get their health care. Wouldn't it just be a heck of a lot easier if the government just provided it? But government's not very capable of providing things in an efficient manner because you take the consumer out of the equation. If, if there's one metric I would be looking at to, to guide our policy making with, with healthcare is how much of healthcare does the consumer directly pay for? In, in, the, in the 40s, it was about 68 cents for every healthcare dollar. In the 60s, prior to Medicare, it was, I think it was about 48 cents. Today, it's 11. 
And so as consumers, yeah, we care what we pay for insurance. We, pay, we care what we pay for taxes, but we don't care at all. We pay for health care services. First of all, we don't even know. There's no price transparency. By the way, providers don't know it either. The only people who know what things cost are the people in the accounting department of the, of the hospitals, the providers, and the accounting departments of the insurance carriers, and all the people in between. So we have a complete, what we have is a completely broken healthcare financing system. There's a whole history to it. I mean, I don't think I have time to go into the history, but we got to this point where we have this third-party payer system through insurance and government, and it just doesn't work because we separated the consumer of the product from the payment of the product, and so we drove consumer-driven price competition, which works in every other area of our economy, to keep prices down and improve quality. So we don't have that in, in, in healthcare at all. And it's also driven it toward a system where it's completely dependent on employers because back in the 40s when we first wage price controls, unions said, okay, just give us more benefits. So they started getting more and more insurance benefits. And then Congress said, hey, let's make that tax deductible. That began the, the employer-based system. So people are really tied to their employer. It's, total, it's a really bad system. And it's also unbelievably unfair for people on the individual market because everybody with group policy is, is getting their health care with after-tax dollars, I mean, with pre-tax dollars. On the individual policy, you're paying with after-tax dollars. A completely unfair situation. But again, we don't have the courage in Congress to really fix that because it's also popular. Okay, so why would your block granting to states make that all better? Because wouldn't there be just variance, wide variance between states? Some states would, I guess, do it you know, really well for consumers, and some other states might not. I, I, I have far more confidence in Wisconsin legislators, and quite honestly, just about any other state legislator, being responsive to their citizens as opposed to one-size-fits-all model. Let, let, let me just tell you about the, you know, how unfair Obamacare is just in terms of its structure of, of financing. There are three states under Obamacare, California, New York, and Massachusetts. They represent a little over 20% of the population. They're getting about 36% of Obamacare funding. That's just, I mean, completely unfair. Um, also within this bill, which is good, is we do allow individuals to purchase health insurance through their HSA, which means an HSA is pre-tax. So now you can start, you know, you at least start equalizing that treatment of allowing individuals on the individual market through their HSAs to buy their health insurance with pre-tax dollars, a little bit fair. Okay, so um, the opioid crisis is wrapped up in all of this too. Um, it's um, I'm not sure uh, where to where to trace it. Well, you know, somebody's writing the scripts, obviously, for for this, and some of it's illegal transactions. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, how would, for instance, your your healthcare fix would that would that help states better combat the opioid crisis? Well, one of the bills I proposed and it was actually going to be so effective. CMS said, "Don't worry about passing. We're just going to implement it." Was called the Prop Act, promoting responsible opioid prescription. Again, well intentioned. They had CMS and Obamacare required surveys of hospitals. Then they tied reimbursement to the results of the survey. Well, part of the surveys was pain management which really incentivizes you know, the providers to make sure that people didn't have pain, which kind of fueled that, that crisis, you know, part, partly. This is really complex. We, we've also literally been training a, a generation of doctors that opioids are not a problem, not addictive. Uh, we have prescription processes where, because doctors are so busy, they just give somebody a 30-day supply. 
Now, we're, there's more education being done that's being ramped back, uh, you know, starting to do just three-day uh, supplies. There's so many different causes for this, but it's a huge crisis. It just is. There is some evidence, okay? I'm not saying it's causation, might be correlation, that indicates that Medicaid expansion might have helped fuel that. Oh, uh, you'll have to explain that one. Okay, so I would recommend everybody go on to Commentary Magazine and read an article by Nick Eberstadt, AEI demographer. And it's, it's a great title, Our Miserable 21st Century. But he, he details, there, people studied this, of individuals, again, Medicaid expansion was targeted toward able-bodied, working-age, childless adults. Okay? And by the way, the federal government funds that at a far higher level. Started out 100% versus what Medicaid funds, federal government funds for disabled children and the elderly. About 60% where we're funding able-bodied, working-age, childless adults. 20% of working-age men, prime working-age, are permanently on, out of the workforce. 20%, one in five. 57% of those individuals are on daily pain medication. About half of them are in some form of Medicaid or some, some, some sort of government health care program where they've got a prescription card. And so they can buy opioids. So first of, all, first of all, with Medicaid expansion now, you can offer a working-age male health insurance. Trust me, I, I ran a business. A lot of people, and you just mentioned in, the, in your other example, a lot of people work for health care, right? Okay. So now all of a sudden you give people health care. Now they don't have to work. And in addition, you give them a card that allows them to buy opioids for three bucks with a street value of thousands. And that's the point Nick Eberstadt is, is making. So I asked my staff, oh, oh, by the way, we extracted this piece of information analysis by HHS that was comparing expansion states versus non-expansion states on increase in overdoses. I'll give you a couple examples. Non-expansion state Wisconsin, uh, I think this is overdoses between 2013 and 2015 up 3%, Ohio 41%. South Dakota, non-expansion state, 18%. North Dakota, expansion state, 205%. Okay, so, 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 so I asked my staff, okay, this is a theory. Okay, can, so can, I was going to say can, this can, is a can, theory, can, right? Can you, yes, can you give me some examples that is more than just a theory that's actually happened? Can you find me a couple people that have been prosecuted and convicted of actually using their Medicaid card and then selling those in the open market? In two days, we came up with 261 individuals in a couple states. Okay, well, so again, that's more than an aberration. So all I'm asking is it requires more study. And why I always ask about well-intentioned government programs is take a look at what are the very serious unintended consequences of these programs. Well, okay. I think a skeptic might say, and I, I haven't heard I'm still you. a skeptic. Oh, you are? Okay, well, you're a... Okay, but anyway, I just kept thinking... No, I'm just, I mean, but, but again, you look at evidence. Doesn't it sound so, like... I, 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 I come from a manufacturing background. There's a problem here. But it kind of sounds what, what, like... What, what are the causes of it? I know, it kind of sounds like, you know, when Reagan was uh, always talking about the welfare Cadillacs and all that. I mean, you know, it, it, so is everybody on Medicaid really there to scam the system? Did anybody say every, everybody? No, I'm just, you know, trying to flush that out a little bit. I've never no, heard I'm, you espouse this theory before. I'm not in, in form saying everybody. Okay. So you're, you were against Medicaid expansion in part because of the dangers of the, these kind of no, things? I never, never, never thought no. about that way. No, oh. I, I, I just are, no, I, I was, I'm, I'm opposed to expanding entitlements because we can't pay for the ones we've got. You know, again, what I said, when you take a look at $20 trillion in debt, over $120 trillion, over $100 trillion in accumulated deficits over the next 30 years, somebody's got to be concerned about that. 
So I'm, I'm just saying that, that basic reality is like an anvil over my head, no matter what I'm considering. And so the last thing you want to do when you're $20 trillion in debt, you're already mortgaging your kids' future, is add more programs that we can't pay for to that. And that's what Obamacare and Medicaid expansion was. It's another program we can't afford. Okay, so it's time to go to audience questions. And you will be shocked to know that the audience has some pointed questions. No. And I quote, if we are $20 trillion in debt, why do Republicans keep trying to cut taxes for the rich? Not trying to do that. What, 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 we're, what, we're, what we're trying to do is grow the economy. I don't care what problem we're dealing with. The, the primary component of the solution is economic growth. How do you grow the economy? And, 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 and how important is it to do so? Over the last 50 years, 70 years, the American economy, this is average. This is with recessions everything else, has averaged more than 3% growth. Over the last 10 years or so, we've been averaging about 2%, less than 2%. The difference is enormous. If you can go get back up to just that average of 3%, that's another $14 trillion of economic activity over a decade, probably throwing about 2 to $3 trillion more revenue to the federal coffers. That's enormous. So what I'm trying to promote is, is a tax reform that is pro-growth, that, in, that incentivizes people to take their risk, to grow their business, to create, to innovate, to create new products. Uh, so it's all about economic growth. It's not about giving you know, tax breaks to one particular group versus another. I'm just trying to prom promote economic growth. Okay, so Congress has so far failed to pass tax cuts or tax reform. Well, we haven't really started the process. Yeah, we were, well, we were, they, we, were, we were blowing the health That's kind of baked thing. into the stock market rise, though, right? Oh, I, I think, mean, if, yeah. you, if, if Congress doesn't perform, doesn't, the, doesn't that risk a recession? Well, I attribute, the, I'll call it the Trump bump in the stock market, uh, primarily, again, I've said this too, the, the main impediment to economic growth is overregulation. Number of studies, about $2 trillion per year to comply with federal regulations. Divided number of households, that's about $15,000 per year per household is the cost of complying with federal re regulations in the form of higher prices, lower wages, and benefits. I think it's a big reason why wages are stag stagnated. So you have to first address that. But I think the reason there was some... some uh, Increase in the stock market is because at least for four years, business people take a look at this administration and realize we're not going to be overregulated for the next four years. I don't have to look over my shoulders wondering, okay, what new regulation is going to cause me to hire another compliance officer, take up a lot of my time? The chancellor of this university, last two years, came into my office complaining about overregulation. Came in this year, armed with a study done by other research universities, said that 42% of research researcher time on government on federal government grants is spent complying with the regulations around those. Now think of what an opportunity cost that is, is you're trying to cure disease with federal grant money. But again, it's, that's just happening in a university setting. This is common in the private sector. So it's a regulatory burden. That pause is what I would say is the, the primary reason the stock market is uh, Gone okay, well, I didn't really want to analyze the stock market that much, as much as... Well, no, I wanted to talk about how important overregulation okay, is. Okay, well, Congress, do you think Congress is actually going to pass tax cuts or are they going to pass tax reform maybe on the, you know, again, in, in, well, big, in a big yeah. way? I, th I think the major, in terms of tax cuts, the major tax cut, according to Trump, is for middle income people in terms of the individual side, but the major tax cut is going to bring our business tax rate down so it's competitive with the global economy. And how does that make people, how does that make the middle class feel better? Well, first of all, businesses, there are a number of economic studies, they're disputed. When you, if you make a buck, 
And if you're paying 50 cents of that buck to the government, that's 50 cents you don't have to grow your business or increase wages and benefits. So there are a number of economic studies that said that, that say that the majority of the corporate tax burden falls and is paid for by employees and consumers. Now, some of it's also paid by the business owners as well. But I, I personally think that's one. So a big benefit to decreasing the corporate tax rate is it will allow more money to expand businesses, expand opportunity, and increase wages and benefits. Not just prop up the stock. But again, you have to do it. Right now, America is, we got about a 35% tax rate, kind of the average overall in, in uh, throughout the world, somewhere between 20 and 25%. We're uncompetitive. Well, that's why. Yeah, this is the same thing. If you're a business and your price is a buck and everybody else is selling for 50 cents, you're going to go out of business. You, 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 have, to, you, know, you have to take your price well, back will, down to Will 50. that get all those uh, corporations to move their money from overseas back to the U.S. and well, use it we, here? We probably also have to move into territorial system where we're not, making, we're not penalizing people bring their money back. We, we have a crazy system here where we just incentivize people to keep it parked over, over, overseas. Which isn't really helping U.S. citizens. No. Listen, I've got my own tax. Can I give you my elevator speech on my tax proposals? It probably won't be, probably won't be enacted, but we'll no, take, it's, we'll, you might, we'll, actually, you might we'll, actually appreciate this. On the individual side, what I would do is, you know, because I get people coming in, lower the rates, broaden the base, just don't touch my, you know, tell me your tax preference. So I don't think that kind of tax reform can pass. So my concept would be, if you like your tax preference, your charitable deduction, home mortgage, you know, life, whatever, keep it. Keep complying with a 70,000-page mess or you can choose an elegantly simple tax system. You take the marginal rates, get rid of all the junk, and you'd have really low effective tax rates right now. You could argue that'd be deficit neutral, but because it's optional, you'd probably lose, lose some revenue there. Again, I'm not in House Ways and Means or Senate Finance, so I'm going to suffer from the not invented here. No, syndrome. but you'd put a lot of accountants out of business. So, the, the, the other, so on the corporate tax side, this is what I do. Again, because employees and consumers pay the corporate tax, I would say, why, why keep doing that? Why don't we make the owners pay the tax? You know, stick it to Warren Buffett. So what I would do is I would take C-Corps and I'd turn them into pastor entities. I, I would tax their income at progressive individual rates. 81% of American businesses already have their business income tax exactly like that. There's so many benefits, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but it'd be, it's an elegantly simple solution. Again, it's actually been written about, got some, some uh, economists think it's a pretty good idea, but I think this administration and, and uh, House Ways and Means and Finance are kind of going down the, another path, which, by the way, I'll support as long as it's pro-growth. All right, here's another question from the audience. You talked about people being paid not to work. What is your ideal scenario of wages to benefits to convince people to want to work without relying on an available social net? You see what I mean? That's, that's, that's a, you don't get that question? Not really. I mean, well, no, but what is okay? What's the ideal scenario then, if you could construct it, in which people are quote unquote paid not to work, and that they uh, so that they would be able to transition away from these the social net? It's extremely difficult to design what we all want—a strong social safety net. You know, helping people that can't help themselves, helping people help themselves. It's very difficult to design that strong social safety net where it remains confined to exactly that population, where it doesn't start creeping into other populations and end up mortgaging our kids' future. I mean, that's, that's what's ended up happening. Our, our entitlement system has blossomed, and it just continues to grow, and that's a real problem. In terms of you, government can't, I don't think, not effectively. They can dictate it, but it doesn't work. 
you can't dictate those types of, types of ratios. The marketplace dictates that. And we're in a global economy. We just are. Uh, we, it's not whether we have a choice whether we're going to compete in the global economy. We have to. Um, I happen to be in favor of free but fair trade. Fair trade. It can't, it can't be abusive. But you know, listen, if, if you're a liberal progressive, I would think you'd also want free trade because it's the moral thing to do. You've got six, seven billion people outside of America, a lot of them in very underdeveloped countries. You've got this, ma you know, this marvelous economy, which, by the way, is the, the biggest thing we got going for us. We're the world's largest customer, the world's largest market. You tell me we can't accept goods from, other, from overseas, which, by the way, really benefit American consumers? Uh, all we, what we need is we need to get government policy out of the way, over-regulation, over-taxation. American workers can compete with everybody on high-value-added product. I think it's crazy to have American workers producing high labor content product. When you've got six, seven billion people out there that will do it for us, we should be concentrating on the, on the value added. We were talking to somebody earlier about solar panels. Uh, there's an effort right now to increase tariffs on solar, solar panels to benefit basically two or three solar panel producing companies in America. You know who disadvantage are all the other companies that take foreign, soaring, for, foreign solar panels and do all the value added to them. You know, the, 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 the things that, you know, the motors that have a go with the sun. That's what America should do. If, so, if some other place, some other country can produce high labor content products really cheap, cheaper than we can, we should let them do it. We should buy it, and then we'll add to it. So you think NAFTA is okay? Yeah, there, there's some trade abuses, but no, I, I think you, take, you really take a look at demagoguery aside, NAFTA has been good for all three countries. All right. Now there's... Uh... Hey, not, he would appreciate yeah, not, not some say, applause. Yeah, I mean, no, not, anyway. not to say there aren't problems. There, you know, there are always problems. Nothing's perfect, but on balance, it's been beneficial to all three countries. The worst thing would be to start to, to go into protectionism mode, uh, stop trade between different countries, particularly in North America. Okay. Now, there's quite a few questions on climate change. Trump is rethinking um, getting out of the Paris Accords. Did, has anything happened? You know, did the hurricanes convince you that? Things are worse, or well, that we should be doing hur hurricane, more. I would I would call hurricanes weather. I, I by the way I do not deny climate change. You know, let me throw out some facts. The Vostok ice core sample, probably the best thing we've got in terms of measuring, you know, climate change over geologic time, 450,000 years, four hundred twenty thousand years, four or five different variations, about twenty two point seven degrees. You know, climate's always changed. Twenty some thousand years ago. I'm not sure it was right here, but I think it was. We were probably covered by a mile-thick glacier. The Bay of San Francisco is about 400 feet lower than it is today. So climate's always changed. So, you know, there, there's evidence about that. I, I, would, I would leap to other facts. I mean, so the best, best we can determine, and I, I'm not 100% sure that we can measure temperatures accurately globally 100 years ago, but let's say we can, about 1.7 degrees over the last 100 degrees. A more rapid increase than other areas, but you can look back at the Vostok. There are some there's variation in terms of how fast things things are increasing. Life expectancy has increased 31.5 years in that hundred years, so it hasn't exactly been a calamity. Bjorn Lombard totally believes in man-made climate change. Doesn't think we should spend anything on it. We'll adapt. My question would be, literally, what can we do about it? I I, I don't know how much money we could throw at the problem and really expect to have any result whatsoever. So why don't we just figure out we got to adapt? 
Oh, no, 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 hey, no. Trust me, guys, I realize this isn't real popular. I'm just trying hey. to get people to think. This is the way I think. Again, I'm not denying climate change. Okay, when did I I'm lose? To I'm totally open to evidence. I, I, but again, I'll, I'll challenge you. What could you really do? E, you know, EPA's own estimate said you get rid of all CO2 in America, and the difference over 100 years is like a fraction of a degree. So, I mean, so we can spend all this kind of money counterproductively, and I don't know what you get out of it. Uh, hey, wait, hey, no, wait, 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 wait. The, the format here, as I've been told, is they, it has to flow through me. I have the critical questions here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them. We're going to have a conversation. It's not a shouting match, okay? Really, you, you really got to respect that, okay? I'm sorry, but that's what, that's what we're here to do. That's, those are my instructions. I'm going to carry it out. So please, don't shout it out, all right? That doesn't do anybody any good, all right? So we're going to have a conversation here, all right? Thanks. Okay, so, no, okay, so if that's... If that we got to deal with it, then I guess people on the coast, though, if they're if they're having water levels are rising and rising, you know that seems to be a government solution to have to come in and build seawalls or do something or relocate people, because that's already happening even without a hurricane, in many parts of the country and in other parts of the world certainly. So again, because of the melting polar ice caps. You know, we can we can. Uh, there's commercial traffic uh, in the Arctic now where there wasn't, you know, however many years ago. So yeah, how? Again, so again, we, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what we can do. Okay. Again, only 20,000 years ago, which is just a blink of an eye in geologic time, the water level in the Bay of San Francisco was 400 feet lower than it is today. Yeah, but we don't Did have you, 20, we don't have 20,000 years. I, I got that, but I mean 400 feet. We're, we're t I don't know what what are, what are the best estimates based on climate change models we're going to go over the next hundred years. So it's, it's inches, isn't it? You know, a, a foot or something, okay? How much money could you really throw at this and really expect a result? So I really do believe, like Bjorn Lambert, we will end up having to adapt. You know, one, okay, one so thing, what, one, by the way, so, mean, what, what so you got mean? all this flooding right now. There's a great article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. One, one piece of property has got endured 22 floods. At some point in time, you go, quit rebuilding in that spot. Yes, but you know, we, we, we create all this moral hazard. You know, people build on the coast because it's great to live on the coast. Well, you know, we don't fortunately live on the coast. No, but isn't, isn't there a government solution to, to that? Like, you know, uh, uh, to either not having people build in an pull, area that's flood prone? Well, or, I guess, or, or moving them or about, building about, the seawall? How about not or? create the moral hazard of continuing to bail people out that build in, in flood prone flood prone areas. Okay, well that would be your that would be one of your well, uh, I, I, charges. Get, I just want build I just want to keep paying to rebuild. All right, well let's talk okay. I mean, well, we again we subsidize flood insurance. It's it's not spread over fairly. And so people keep doing it's moral hazard. They keep building the same places and keep getting destroyed and then American taxpayer our kids keep having to bail them out. It's okay, not so, a very good policy. All right, so you know we're talking about now, flood. But, but again, would I say you can't build on the coast? No, I just say if you if you build on the coast and your house gets destroyed you better have insurance, and it's going to cost you a lot. I don't want to subsidize your insurance. Okay, so you would want to get rid of, of federal flood insurance. Yeah, but it's not going to happen, so. No, if, I mean, again, I, but I, if you I, I, I do accept reality, you know. But if you could, you'd get rid of that program? I, I, I would, not, not necessarily, because you need, you need federal government flood insurance because other, otherwise insurance, insurers simply wouldn't insure at all. They just, and there would be no, there probably wouldn't be an insurance market. So I, I don't know, there has to be some kind of blend, but right, right now the way we've got a structure is not good. Way too much moral hazard.
Are the Paris Accords, are they important? Is the U.S. should the U.S. be involved, or you were okay with Trump pulling out of it? I think the Paris Accords were a big old nothing burger. I think a lot of people, climate change uh, advocates were saying they're kind of nothing burger, too. Again, I'm just saying, what can we really do? We are a fossil fuel-based economy worldwide. We just are, and we're going to be that way for decades. Well, I guess wouldn't wouldn't one of the solutions be to not be fossil-based? And, 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 and over time, we'll start moving in that direction, but that's going to all going to have to be market-based. Okay. Other, t- otherwise, otherwise, okay. otherwise, you are paying way more for things like electricity. And again, if, if you're concerned about people around the world, you know, the six, seven billion people living, some of them in squalor and less developed, they can't afford to pay five or six or seven times the market current market rate for fossil fuel-based electricity. You, you com- completely consign those individuals to destitution for the rest of their lives. That t- doesn't seem like a very moral thing to do. So Bjorn Lomborg, I'd really ask all of you, go to Bjorn Lomborg, the, the Copenhagen Consensus, very thoughtful. He's got, he's got this group of economists and scientists. Take a look at this again. He totally believes in man-made climate change. I'm just saying, I'm, you know, I'm going, what can we do about it? He's saying with limited resources, and this is true, we have limited resources. What is the best way to spend those resources to have the most positive impact on people's lives. I think the number one thing he says is dig wells for people, which is good. Combat, you know, combat malaria. You know, the, you know, people living in squalor don't need solar panels. Okay, so um, this question has to do with, uh, I'm trying to tie them all together here, about a, a uh, how will you lead to ensure tax reform includes a revenue-neutral carbon tax? I'm not so sure you're for a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Precisely, what? so I probably won't lead on that. No, but, why, but why, why, what's wrong with that? You know, I, 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 I'm not saying it's a crazy idea whatsoever. Because I would like a paradigm-shifting tax reform. I kind of told you what my own ideas was. I'm, I'm open to all kinds of ideas. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think it has a chance of passage. So I, I do try and you know, deal with proposals in the realm of possibility. But as a business-based solution... Is that not? It's, it's worthy of consideration, but again, I don't think it's uh, possible passing it. Are you having fun so far? I always have fun. You know, <laughs> you've only gotten me in trouble a couple times during these interviews. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought you were going to talk about the Vietnam series then, right? Yeah, I love Ken Burns. Was, that, <laughs> I, I, I love his documentary. He totally took that out of context. No, I didn't. No, we, he did. No, he did. Oh, yeah, we were having a conversation. I was complimenting him. Do you, you know? want to relive that? Or? No, I don't think Oh, we you should. don't want to relive that. <laughs> Okay, you guys can look it up. Ken Burns and Ron Johnson. I, I, just, I just suggested, honestly, if you're going to teach the Civil War, <laughs> oh, pop, you're in, gonna, pop in uh, Ken Burns tapes. They're great. You know? <laughs> now, they took it like I was saying, you know, let's get rid of all high school teachers. No, no my point was utilize technology. You know, we don't have productivity gains in education. I, no, I've got, I love Ken Burns. You know, I, I can hardly wait. I was kind of disappointed he didn't have uh, clips of his series, and I was reading about it in the New York Times this morning. All right. Automa- uh, this is another question. Even though he just ripped me a new one when, when I... <laughs> okay, here's a question for, for the audience. Automation is projected to displace more jobs than immigration or outsourcing. How do you recommend accommodating workers displaced by automation? So l- let me ask if anybody in the audience here would like to go back, oh, I don't know, 100 years when a very large percentage of the American population was involved in growing our food. Think that's a good idea? Have 50, 60, 70% of Americans growing vegetables so we can all eat them? No, of course not. Why don't we have 50, 60, 70% of American population growing our food? It's because 
productivity gains, automation. You know, we're not tilling our, our fields with a horse and plow anymore. You know, we've got tractors. So you want productivity gains in the economy. You do want to you know, automate things as much as possible and then free workers to do more higher value added things. Now, it's never equal. There are obviously winners and losers. It doesn't feel real good when you're in the, the buggy whip business and, and you know, don't have buggy whips anymore. But there are other things, there are other things you start doing. So again, I, I don't think government can manage the innovation, the creativity of the American economy, nor should they try. Uh, things do, again, if you allow the free market, consumer-driven, price competition, you know, the invisible hand of Adam Smith to work, America, it's not perfect, but America has proven that individual liberty and freedom combined with a free market competitive system works. We're 5% of the world's population. We, we account for somewhere between 20 25% of the world's good. That's not because we've got a great government. It's because we have innovative individuals and we have individual liberty and freedom, and we actually do rely, by and large, although we're kind of shifting away from it, uh, free market competition. We're getting near the end, but I think that this, there's a few questions about this. I'll try to, uh, it, they have to do with Russia and voting integrity. Do worry about the voting integrity, uh, or what occurred in 2016. You got reelected in 2016, but do you worry that Russian influence affected your election results or other election results? No. Do you work? Not at all. No, I, I don't think I don't think they did. I think the, the election was the election. Uh, am I concerned about uh, high integrity elections? Sure. You know, I, I don't want to see voter fraud. I don't want to see one legitimate vote canceled by a fraudulent vote. You know, I'm concerned about voter rolls. I think the thing that concerned me most about, because uh, let's face it, we all we all knew that Russia was being accused of leaking these emails. You know, if it was damaging, it was because what was contained in the email. So, you, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm still, somebody was going to leak those. You know, it's, it's really bad that Russia, if, if they were the ones that did it, that they did it. But we had that information. It was information that, that uh, filtered into the campaign. What concerned me is certainly the indication that they may have been trying to hack into voter rolls, where you really start destroying the integrity of elections. So, uh, the good news is, you know, every state has uh, its own election system, they really are pretty well walled off from the internet. They should remain walled off from the internet. Um, I don't really believe that we should go to real high-tech voting. You think we should do paper I, ballots? I like, I love, you know, my, we do paper ballots where I vote in Oshkosh. I love that system. You think that that's better than no, having... No, no, they're, they're scanned. You know, you do the paper ballot, you scan Right. I, I like that, but you've got the, you know, the verification, you have to do a voter recount. Make, so I would, I, would, I would personally completely oppose Electronic ballots. So you think we should, should remain low tech in terms I of voting? I think so. Yeah, there are a lot of things you should remain low tech in. Okay. Are you concerned about Russia? Absolutely. In and by the way, this didn't come as a surprise to me. I'm, I'm chairman of the European Subcommittee on Foreign Relations. We were holding hearings on Russia's influence in other countries. So I mean, this this is what they do. They just have a new technology to continue it. But they they've been engaged in, in disinformation propaganda throughout Eastern Europe. There will be a trial, I think it's been suspended right now in Montenegro, that I think will pretty well prove that it would have been an act of war if it would have been uh, carried out, but uh, you know, an attempted coup where Russian GRU agents basically trained uh, some Serbian uh, militia folks to go in there and shoot up the Montenegro parliament trying to kill the, the uh, uh, prime minister. So no, I mean, I'm highly concerned about Russia. It's, it's a shame that uh, Russia has gone from what I think had been a friendly rival after the fall of the Soviet Union to an unfriendly adversary. I sure don't want 
Russia become an enemy. And so I know what this administration is trying to do, Secretary Tillerson is trying to find those areas where we can cooperate. Um, but we also have to push back with some real resolve in, in the areas where they're you know, invading countries like Crimea and Ukraine and killing people. And, and we've got to stop that advance. Okay, so where, where do you think all this Russian, all the investigation into this goes? You once, I think, said it, you hope there's an investigation, you hope it's done quickly. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be quick. No, it's, un, it's unfortunate. And, and also, it, I mean, in, in the news article in New York Times Day, they talked about that, uh, you know, for example, Facebook gave more information to Mueller than he gave to the, the uh, congressional committees. Uh, it's what I predicted to a certain extent. I said, you know, I really wanted those committees to conduct their investigation, issue the report as thoroughly but as quickly as possible to see if further action be required. I, th I think it was a mistake to appoint the special counsel, particularly because I thought that was going to make it much more difficult for the congressional committees to do their work. But now we've got a special counsel. This thing will drag on forever. It's, it's just the, been the history of special counsels and special prosecutors. They go into you know, far-flung areas, whether you're talking about Ken Starr and Monica Lewinsky, or you're talking about the investigation about Valerie Plame, who, by the way, they knew within a couple days who leaked her name, but that investigation just kept going on, and then you, you convict people of process crimes. You know, you're kind of hunting for, for a crime. We have more serious challenges facing this nation to allow something like that to, to run amok, but that's where we are right now. It's unfortunate. All right, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you, you know, an interview with you is never boring. Well, that's it. So anyway, let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> U.S. Senator Ron Johnson.